Hello and welcome to Shank Talks Bonhoeffer, a podcast sponsored by the Dietrich Bonhoeffer Institute. This conversation is all about the life, times, and interests of our namesake, this bold, brave, brilliant, young German church leader uh, during the period of the rise of Adolf Hitler and National Socialism in Europe. He would be one of the first voices to speak out against the racialized dictatorship of Adolf Hitler, would work to bring down the Third Reich, and would surrender his life when he was hanged at the Flossenburg concentration camp at age 39, uh, just at the end of the war. But of course, uh, anyone who knows anything about Bonhoeffer knows he left us a wonderful legacy of literature, of correspondence, sermons, uh, and the like, even poetry and fiction that help us to appreciate his insights, particularly on the subject of ethics. Which brings me to the nexus with my guest and conversation partner today, Michael Hannigan. Michael uh, is, in fact, uh, I would argue, uh, an ethicist. Uh, theologian, one of our most recent appointments as a senior fellow here at the Dietrich Bonhoeffer Institute. Uh, but there's a little more to his CV, so much so that I've got to bring it up on the screen and uh, read you some highlights because they are deserving of such. Uh, Michael completed a Master of Theological Studies at Oklahoma Christian University, a Master of Religious Education and in missional leadership at Rochester University, a Bachelor of Arts in Bible and Ministry uh, at uh, his uh, graduate alma mater, again, the Oklahoma Christian University. He is a teacher, uh, has been an associate editor, uh, and a minister of preaching and community engagement uh, today. He is uh, serving as, uh, in his capacity as an intellectual property architect, which is so intriguing that I'd love to do a whole podcast on it, Michael. Uh, but your nexus with our Bonhoeffrian universe is your seat as a theologian and ethicist, and most recently, uh, our resident expert on the situation with the Moscow Patriarchate, its membership in the World Council of Churches. And uh, of course, for the folks who have visited our website, you know that we launched uh, a petition drive to, uh, uh, to urge, maybe even demand the World Council of Churches uh, look critically at the membership of the Moscow Patriarchate. Uh, and his leadership uh, because of his first tacit, then later explicit endorsement of Vladimir Putin's war of aggression against Ukraine. So with that set up, uh, Michael, first of all, welcome to the podcast and uh, nice to introduce you to our uh, TDBI podcast family. Thanks, Rob. It's really great to be here. I'm looking forward to our conversation and uh, to the good work that Bonhoeffer has left for us to do. Well, one of the one of the things I like to do when uh, 
a senior fellow joins me in conversation is to fully introduce you to our podcast listeners. So maybe we could just start with a little, if you don't mind giving us a short biography, uh, go back in time as far as you'd like into the deep ancestry, if you wish, or just to your elementary school, wherever you want to start the timeline. We'd love to know you a little bit better. So um, tell us about Michael Hannigan, if you would. Yeah, yeah, thank you. Uh, you know, I grew up uh, literally in church every day of my life. Um, I went to a, a small Christian school. Um, my father was an elder in the church that I grew up in. And so six, seven days a week, I've, I've spent most of my childhood uh, in a church building. Uh, you, were, learning, you, were, you were literally one of those I was, babes I was, that teethed uh, on from, the back of a pew, huh? Yes. Uh, I, uh, there, in, in the church that I grew up in, there, is, there are still my initials carved into my, my pew. Really? Uh, you know, some, some holy graffiti, uh, yes. if you will, <laughs> uh, from, from my younger, uh, more mischievous days. And where was this? Uh, this was in Colorado. I grew up in Denver. Uh -huh. Um, and, uh, you know, I subsequently went on and, uh, pursued ministry, um, and did that for a while. And what I recognized is that, um, my love for scholarship and for learning, uh, often moved at a much faster pace than the communities which I served. Uh, and so I really committed myself to my academic work. Wait a minute, I'm going to ring the proverbial bell here, because I like to do that every time I find a nexus with our namesake, Bonhoeffer. Yeah. Uh, I would say that 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 describes him pretty well Certainly. Uh, on those points. Anyway, so ring, ring, ring. Certainly. Uh, so I left ministry and uh, took a role as the uh, lead representative uh, to faith communities with the Oklahoma Department of Human Services. Uh, my job was to help bring in faith communities uh, to work in uh, public-private partnerships. Uh, this is in 2013, so this is just as uh, Obama's uh, faith office is really exploding mm -hmm. and uh, churches are re- uh, kind of reassessing the way in which they respond to the state. Uh, and so I was brought in uh, to help rethink that relationship. Another another dingling here because yeah. we're, we're getting into church-state, the dynamics of church-state relations. Absolutely. Apropos. Uh, and so in the midst of this, I became the agency representative for a collaborative around uh, the Center for Disease Control and Prevention's uh, adverse childhood experiences uh, hmm. research, um, which is not only breathtaking in its scope, um, which now encompasses more than two million people, uh, hmm. but it's but it's breathtaking in the the way it captures the damage of harm that is done to human beings, particularly children. Hmm. Hmm. Uh, and I knew that in my role uh, approaching faith communities as faith communities, uh, that I just didn't have the theological resources I needed uh, to name the realities that I could identify clinically uh, with resources that functioned um, theologically. Uh, so I left that position and returned to graduate school. Uh, and there I really tried to explore uh, the intersections of trauma and religion, uh, particularly the way in which um, not that 
not that theology is responsive to trauma, but that trauma has an outsized impact on the way that theology develops mm-hmm. and is subsequently enacted. Mm-hmm. Uh, I did this in part, uh, to be honest, uh, to decide if I could still be a Christian uh, with the scope of suffering that I had been confronted with mm-hmm. uh, in that work. Um, and uh, someone who I find to be a very kindred spirit of Bonhoeffer, uh, Dorothy Sole, the German theologian, uh, was a was a lifesaver for me in this way. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that work uh, uh, was kind of come to a head in my in my graduate thesis, which has continued in the work that I do today. Uh, and then immediately after graduating, uh, my wife uh, entered. Uh, Union Theological Seminary, um, ding, ding, where, ring, ring, where, ring. Uh, where our apartment was uh, 100 feet from the, the Bonhoeffer room. Oh. Um, and, you know, I, uh, I sat in, in Dorothy Soleil's office. Uh, Professional jealousy and studied. going on here. Uh, it, was, it was an incredible experience uh, for us. And so we were formed deeply there uh, in the final in the final couple of years of uh, Dr. James Cohn's time at Union, oh, yes. and just some really important conversations. Uh, and so for me, uh, my work has really pushed me to think about the ways in which the Christian tradition has not only been uh, malformed by experiences of trauma and suffering, but that it has these unique capacities um, to cultivate and sustain communities that do something about the realities and the ubiquity of trauma and suffering. Uh, And so in some ways, I find myself uh, not only drawing on people like Bonhoeffer, uh, but in some ways wrapped up in the same kinds of difficult and sometimes unanswerable questions. Um, And so I'm just really grateful to have the opportunity to explore that uh, in the midst of uh, the Institute. And, uh, and I think you know, one of the way, primary ways that we see um, trauma shaping the tradition in our current moment uh, is with what we wanted to talk about today, which is uh, the war in Ukraine. So it's a little bit about me. Yeah, thank you. I, I already appreciate you deeply and even more having heard uh, all of that, including just your formation. Um, And, you know, of course, when you speak of trauma uh, and and the the, at least the theological exploration of trauma, it makes me think of a couple of things immediately. First is how much trauma factors into the Bonhoeffer story. It it is a story of both trauma and suffering on the grandest scale. So all the way from the macro to the micro. But really, and and again, we could spend a whole episode just on this, but one might argue that trauma is at the core of the gospel story itself. I mean, how else can we describe both the suffering of Christ, uh, the, the suffering of the disciples, the suffering of the society and culture around them? I'm married to a psychotherapist, I think you know, who specializes in trauma. And all of these, I mean, we see the evidence of it, even in the biblical record, the the gospel record. So I'd love to explore that with you. Maybe we can uh, come back to the microphone uh, together. But 
for now, as you said, uh, we want to get to this more immediate matter, which is uh, the status of the Moscow Patriarchate. And I, I use that intentionally uh, rather than the Russian Orthodox Church. And maybe we can talk a little bit about why. But we're talking about the leadership of the Russian Orthodox Church, which is based in Moscow and closely aligned with uh, the, the Russian state and the Russian state leader, uh, Putin, is, is not technically a state church, but it's certainly a state-favored church in a very significant way. Mm-hmm. And its leader, the patriarch, which uh, he is sometimes mistakenly described as the Russian Orthodox Pope. He is not a pope. He does not have the powers, uh, the authority, uh, or even function of a pope. Uh, He's uh, a bishop and uh, first among equals with other bishops of the church and is only one of many Orthodox patriarchs uh, on the globe. Um, and, And maybe we can explore that a little bit. But the question at hand is where we are in our appeal to the World Council of Churches, which is the largest uh, and and I, I I guess oldest at this point, ecumenical Christian body on the planet. Um, do you know offhand, Michael, how many member church bodies they have? Is it something like 40? Uh, it's more than that, but I think it encompasses almost 600 million Christians is the last right. number that I saw. Right. Okay. Um So this represents an enormous uh, constituency and a very large uh, percentage of the Christians that occupy this globe. And it's quite a range of Protestant bodies and Orthodox bodies. Um, I'm not aware of any Catholic, I mean, the Roman Catholic Church is certainly not a member, and I don't think any of the other Catholic um, bodies are. Would you know, Michael? I, 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 I believe that's true, but I do think part of part of measuring the influence of the WCC is that largely the moves that the WCC makes, you find echoed even in the Catholic traditions, um, especially even on this question. I think you see, you know, even though they're not formal members, I think you see Francis and so many others uh, moving in the same trajectory as the WCC here. The very important point. And certainly, as you say, it, it sets a momentum uh, for the global church inside and outside membership in the WCC. So this is a very significant body with a very rich history to it. And here sits uh, the Russian Orthodox Church by way of its patriarch and other uh, leaders in that uh, ecclesial uh, body. And they've been there since the, I think, early 1960s. Uh, was it 61-ish, something like that? That sounds right, yeah. 
that the uh, Russian church gained membership. And they've always been, from what I can tell, um, very active members, uh, very engaged uh, in the WCC. So to take folks back, uh, how this entered the world of the Dietrich Bonhoeffer Institute was when I received uh, an email from uh, a group of Eastern uh, Protestant church leaders that asked me to take a look at some materials uh, that were only crudely translated into English at that point. One was an essay by uh, the Prague-based Czech theologian uh, Pavel Czerny, who was uh, calling for the expulsion of the Russian Orthodox Church, not simply the Patriarch Kirill, but the church as a whole. Uh, we helped fully translate that into the English so that, you know, the full uh, tenor of his argument could be appreciated. And it was published uh, on a couple of platforms, most notably the Christian Post, which gets a very wide readership, mostly evangelical, but beyond evangelical. And that provoked uh, the religion news service to ask me if I would contribute my own essay on the matter. And I've got to tell you, Michael, at that point uh, in a conversation with Pavel and a subsequent podcast uh, recording with him, which folks can still hear, it's uh, posted in our library still. Uh, and I'd encourage you to listen to the conversation with Pavel Cheney. Uh, he he uh, he persuaded me. He convinced me that we should call for the patriarch and the ROC, meaning Russian Orthodox Church's uh, expulsion. But as time went on, and I met you, and and we had our internal conversations along with another senior fellow here at the institute, Mike Austin. Uh, teaches moral philosophy at Eastern Kentucky University and president of the Evangelical Philosophical Society. We all got talking, and you persuaded me otherwise, that we should call for something other than expulsion. And I'd like to go into that, but first I wonder if you could lay the groundwork for it by explaining mm -hmm. what you discovered in your research on the WCC. Sure. Um, I mean, you know, the WCC is not only a historic institution, uh, but it's an incredibly complex and large institution. Uh, and so what we learned uh, is that there have only been a couple of times where a particular religious tradition, a member organization, a member church, has run so far afoul of the primary values and commitments of the WCC, that the first time it happened uh, with the Dutch Reformed Church uh, in the in the era of apartheid, uh, that there wasn't even uh, an actual organizational mechanism by which discipline could occur. It was just unprecedented. Um, things were still uh, evolving about the nature and complexity, and obviously the scope of the WCC makes things complicated uh, and it moves slowly. So the Dutch Reformed Church um, was in a position to be in some way disciplined 
uh, by the WCC, um, but left uh, before any of that could occur. And so after the fact, the WCC began to include mechanisms in their rules uh, and in kind of their, their lack of a better term, their constitution uh, about how that might work. Subsequently, we discovered that only one member church has ever actually been removed from the WCC. And this was actually just recently, uh, the Kimbongwas Church, uh, a church in Africa, uh, was recently removed for theological reasons um, regarding um, some questions about uh, the potential divinity of their founding prophet. And what we came to find out is that the primary reason they were expelled uh, was not necessarily because uh, of a doctrinal question, but simply because they refused to participate in the process, and that that process took over a decade. And so we recognized that in the, you know, in the first 30, 60 days of the war in Ukraine, the chances of an organization that moves in this way, moving in the way that we were wanting, uh, was just unrealistic. But at the same time, we also began to understand from uh, interviews given by the general secretary and by other leading members of the WCC, that there was a deep and intentional posture uh, to maintain dialogue. And in the midst of all that, we began to see more, more and more publicly uh, that while Kirill has been, while, while the patriarch has been uh, unapologetic and uncompromising in his justification of this war, in his um, in his baptizing of the the language and uh, rightness of uh, this invasion of the of the violence and the the harm and the and the war crimes of this um, this invasion, that the Russian Orthodox Church itself as a whole. Uh, because as you mentioned, Rob, uh, Kirill is not a pope. He is the first among equals. That the ROC itself uh, had a, a, a kind of a dizzying breadth of dissent, um, not just in the portions of what is now the Ukrainian Orthodox Church, which has broken off from uh, the Russian Patriarchate in Moscow, uh, but even those who had stayed within the Russian Church. There was not um, anything approaching a universal endorsement of Kirill's position about the war. And so all of these complexities, both the, the history and mechanisms of the WCC and the unfolding uh, and ongoing uproar within orthodoxy and even within Russian orthodoxy, uh, we found that uh, it seemed to us that expulsion was... Um, a blunt instrument uh, that would be unfairly applied to many who find themselves in that tradition for whatever reason. Michael, thank you for that summary. Um, I'd like to do a little sidebar here just for a moment for the folks who are listening in and may not understand the structure of orthodoxy. Now, I'm far from an expert on the Orthodox churches. Uh, I know You've already made it clear, uh, Michael, you are neither. Uh, <laughs> uh, you are neither. So we're going to do our best here, folks. But uh, really, this is elementary 101. Unlike 
the Roman Catholic Church, which has an embodied uh, leader, uh, you know, one singular authority, of course, that I understand our Roman Catholic friends will say, yes, but there's a magisterium, etc. I, I understand that. But, but the patriarch is not the equivalent of a pope, and neither is the Orthodox Church unified in a way that the Roman Catholic Church or some other global bodies are unified. There are actually numerous Orthodox churches, and they often break down along ethnic, linguistic, historical, or geopolitical boundaries. So you have uh, a Romanian Orthodox Church, you have a Greek Orthodox Church, uh, you have, um, uh, Michael, you already named the Ukrainian Orthodox Church particularly important distinction in that one, and so on and so forth. And then there's an ecumenical or full house patriarch, if you will, based at uh, Istanbul, Turkey, or uh, historical ancient Constantinople. And in a way, he's kind of, that's Bartholomew, patriarch Bartholomew, who's kind of uh, maybe a half an inch higher than any of the other patriarchs of the various other Orthodox bodies. And there's a kind of consensus that builds among the Orthodox. And there's also, you know, uh, periods when there's significant unity among all these different expressions of the Orthodox Church. And then there are periods of significant conflict and tension. Uh, and we'll go into that in a minute. But I'm just giving everybody an idea of how diverse the Orthodox Church is. And, uh, and that, that uh, at least I would argue, Michael, that that plays into understanding all of this that we're discussing now, because uh, even within the Russian Church, and, and likely if we were to explored uh, more deeply, we would find it even at the highest levels of leadership. There are significant differences here, and even objection to Kirill and his embrace of Putin's belligerence against uh, Ukraine. So having, having kind of done that little uh, sidebar, Maybe we can explore here what, again, if, if you wouldn't mind kind of um, reiterating, what, what are the options and why, why, why are we pursuing uh, those, those pathways as we speak now? And, and maybe we'll talk a little bit about some of our interactions with the WCC even very recently. Sure. Yeah, I mean, uh, obviously, one option uh, is expulsion. Um, there are mechanisms by which that can occur. Um, there is not uh, a lot of precedent about the steps that lead up to that result. Uh, but that is, uh, it is on the table as far as the institution itself is designed. It seems to me um, that that is a move 
that would only come with a more unified uh, affirmation of the war in Ukraine than what currently exists in the ROC. Um, and so that does not seem to me to be uh, front and center, but I don't think it's off the table uh, by any stretch. And 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 the um, the principle at the WCC that you and I and Mike Austin uh, spoke to recently at length in a formal meeting with other representatives of the WCC in that meeting uh, did not remove it either. Right. As an extreme measure, to be sure, but still a possible inevitability, if nothing else resolves. So, but say and on so, beyond and, and expulsion, so, yeah, and certainly not a certainly not a rapid response uh, by any stretch. Hmm. Uh, another option, which uh, I don't know that there's necessarily a mechanism in place, but there is some space for some kind of censure or. Uh, perhaps adjustment in the kind of membership status that the tradition may hold um, to perhaps uh, remove some some voting power or uh, participation in um, you know, different parts of the WCC. Um, you know, the, the Russian Orthodox Church is a member uh, of the Central Committee of the WCC, which is the body uh, of the organization that does make decisions about membership. And so it is not only uh, a member of the WCC, but a, uh, an influential one, uh, even at the innermost workings of the organization. Uh, in fact, I think they have more than one uh, representative in the committee, if I'm not mistaken. Um, the, other, the other possibility that is that there is a way in which the ROC itself, uh, as a larger body, uh, comes alongside the WCC in rejecting the kind of theological and political justifications that its uh, patriarch, Kirill, are making. And I think that's largely what we're seeing. And this is part of the reason why uh, our, our primary call then was not for expulsion, uh, but for some kind of suspension or some kind of um, kind of quarantining almost, just to, to kind of place them in a holding position where the dialogue might continue. And what evidence have you seen? I know uh, you've seen more than I have, that there are forces within the Orthodox Church itself that may steer things in that direction. Yeah, I mean, you know, there uh, first what we have is is the the really explicit and really well done uh, theological rebuke of the teaching of the Ruski Mir, the Russian world, which is the the ideology that Kirill is espousing uh, in his justification for this war. And can uh, you and summarize comes, it just in a, a couple of uh, I mean, it is just sentences. a point by point tearing down of all of the fundamental ideas of that of that ideology. It, it comes from the Orthodox Study Center at Fordham, uh, which I believe is the only Orthodox uh, Study Center like it in the U.S. Uh, and it's just signed by so many members 
with tremendous weight in the larger Orthodox community. And I'll just make a note for our listeners that we will place a link to that statement uh, in the text surrounding this podcast. So look for it there. I mean, we also see, too, that there has been a formal call for an ecumenical trial of Kirill uh, to appear before uh, an ecumenical orthodox body uh, to answer for this, these teachings and for the justification of the war. And so we find that the global orthodox community um, is far from on board uh, with what is happening here. But then the third piece that is most interesting and that I think is, is certainly the most recent development uh, is that less than a month ago, uh, on the 18th of June, actually, the WCC Central Committee, of which the Russian Orthodox Church is a participant, uh, actually issued a statement. Uh, and so this is, uh, its final form is by consensus, uh, which means that this includes the consensus of the World Council of Churches representatives of the Russian Orthodox Church. Um, and it is... Uh, an unambiguous uh, rejection of the war in Ukraine. Uh, for example, it says, the Central Committee deplores the illegal and unjustifiable war inflicted on the people of the sovereign state of Ukraine, and we lament the awful and continuing toll of death, destruction, and displacement of destroyed relationships and of more deeply entrenched antagonism between the people of the region, of escalating confrontation globally, of increased famine risk in food insecure regions of the world and of economic hardship and heightened social political instability in many countries and declares that war with the killing and all the other miserable consequences it entails is incompatible with God's very nature and will for humanity and is against our fundamental Christian and ecumenical principles and that they reject any misuse of religious language and authority to justify armed aggression. Uh, that comes with at least some measure of approval of individuals who are representatives of the Russian Orthodox Church and the larger Central Committee of the WCC. And do you know were were the were any of those representatives present when that when that statement was uh, adopted? I don't I don't know that they disclose attendance, uh, mm -hmm. but I know that the three or four members. Uh, of the Russian Orthodox Church, uh, Moscow Patriarchate, who are members of the community, I would imagine uh, knew uh, what was coming. Sure. And we haven't seen anything that would suggest otherwise that the Central mm -hmm. Committee did not have total uh, total assent to the final text that was published. Mm -hmm. I wonder if that's been disseminated anywhere in Russian. Uh, I'm going to do a little search for that. It would be interesting to me if that's made its way back home, if you will. I mean, I don't know uh, for the Russians anyway. Um, so uh, we only have a few minutes left uh, before we really test the patience of our podcast family here, Michael. There's so much more to explore here. But I wonder if you would just um, give us a report on where we stand right now with our own engagement with the WCC. Yeah, I think we stand in a position of, uh, of solidarity and of support. Uh, we certainly stand in a position where we are interested in the ways in which um, 
ecumenical channels have proved to be more resilient and more generative than geopolitical ones. Uh, and I think uh, we find ourselves in one sense in an exciting moment in that uh, substantive theological engagement, which is what is taking place in the WCC around this question, uh, is perhaps being more productive uh, than the secular geopolitical work that is taking place. Um, I imagine that uh, Bonhoeffer would be surprised to see not another Barman declaration, but instead uh, a, a majority speaking out against such uh, an egregious enactment in the name of God instead of uh, a faithful minority. Wow, great point. Great point that you make there. And, um, you know, of course, uh, in the meeting that that you and I and Mike Austin, uh, where we presented to three representatives of the WCC, there was an invitation uh, to us for ongoing engagement with them. But I thought one of, for me, one of the brightest moments uh, in that exchange was uh, when we were informed that uh, Bonhoeffer loomed very large in the internal discussions uh, that, that uh, uh, you know, for which the outcome was this, this statement. So the negotiations, the, the discourse, the debate, whatever form it took, uh, our namesake was there, present with his ideas. And, uh, and, and, you know, as you suggest, brought about a document that is one step or maybe even a few steps beyond what Barman was. So, uh, you know, to use the old hackneyed Dixonian uh, uh, phrase, uh, these are the best of times and the worst of times. Uh, so we have opportunities. There are still options available to us here, correct? There are. And I think uh, I, I don't want us to miss that this declaration that war is incompatible with God's nature and is uh, incompatible with kind of the fundamental ecumenical principles of the WCC, that that is, in fact, perhaps the most concrete statement that has come out in the history of the WCC uh, about war. Uh, there was another time in 1991 uh, in the in the earliest days of the war in Iraq, uh, where an attempt to take a similar position was attempted at a General Assembly uh, there in Canberra uh, and failed to do so. And so I'm hopeful uh, that the position of the Central Committee here which is in keeping with a long trajectory of the WCC increasingly uh, opposing war and violence in all its forms. Uh, I'm hoping that this will uh, continue to develop and take on a life of its own so that it becomes uh, not just a statement of the Central Committee, but a, a fundamental uh, value and practice of the WCC. And so I, I find um, just the, the developments of the last few weeks to be incredibly hopeful. Um, for for the ecumenical witness uh, of war and for the the ongoing dialogue that's necessary 
uh, to try and bring this conflict to an end. Well, I join you uh, intentionally uh, and deliberately in your hope. There are moments when I give into the temptation of pessimism, uh, but I want to remain optimistic, and there's every reason to. Uh, after our meeting with the principals, uh, reading this document, watching the direction uh, that things are going in now with the WCC vis-a-vis -vis, uh, the patriarchate and uh, the, the war against Ukraine. Um, but also, Michael, I want to applaud the heavy lifting you did in this, which was uh, very, very productive, very fruitful. And we're grateful to God to have you in our senior fellowship and, uh, and, and to be working alongside you in this effort. We're going to keep everybody posted on the developments here. Uh, check our, you know, check out our website from time to time. You'll see updates there. And um, Michael, Mike Austin, and I uh, will keep you as up to date as we can. In the meantime, we will all pray for an end to the misery and the suffering and the insult to humanity. Uh, that is the Russian war of aggression against the Ukrainian people. Let's pray together as a unified church, as followers of the Prince of Peace, uh, as common fellow human beings and inhabitants uh, of this globe. Michael, thank you so much for such a rich conversation. It won't be the last one we have, I'm sure, uh, by way of this podcast. And folks, be sure to share this around uh, when you're talking to colleagues, family, friends, fellow church members, uh, anyone uh, who is deeply concerned, as they should be, with what is unfolding still, uh, not just in Ukraine, but of course in Russia and in uh, the surrounding countries. For now, we bid you uh, peace in the name of the one who embodies peace. Thanks one and all for joining us.